Good morning. We are going to try to step out to the side here. Some of you have never seen me step out from behind the pulpit. Uh, if you were here during the pandemic, you remember I did this a little bit to stand over here. We're going to make sure this thing, this thing on Sabbath. There we go. Make sure that uh, it works, but uh, sometimes uh, I like to uh, make sure that you're awake and paying attention. If you remember a couple of months ago, I preached a Sunday afternoon from the floor, so I said I could step out and get anybody if they were falling asleep. Uh, also, some of you have noticed, yes, the lights are off up here. That's not so that you can sleep or get, have a little, uh, be a little closer to a nap, but we are still trying things with our live stream and the sound and the lights and things like that. So uh, we were trying that this morning to see how it looked, but uh, uh, that's not the purpose for those being off. I did also want to mention before we get started this morning um, that we are thankful for your prayers on behalf of, of Freddie as he will recover from his fall. But it just gives me a moment to remind you of just how dangerous it is to be a preacher sometimes, right? You think that preachers got it easy they're never in any kind of danger but you never know when a baptism you know slips up and goes wrong there uh, but many of you have asked some of you have asked he did the baptism was over finished before he fell so that was good uh, but he just slipped we don't know if water was involved or not but slipped uh, of course the setup is similar to ours with stairs and things and so it, he had fallen and, and really injured himself um, but it is pretty dangerous sometimes to be a preacher. I think the closest I've come before to being injured was trying to keep up with Sandra Grove at some of our community giveaways. Uh, if you've ever tried to work with Sandra around those kinds of things, it's very uh, difficult. The second probably is trying to keep up with Tom Levi during a men's work day. If you've ever tried to do those things, Tom will work you and you come pretty close to injury. But, uh, but no, we're thankful for, um, uh, for your prayers on his behalf and hope that things will, will continue to improve for him uh, as he recovers from that. You know, a lot of times when you see a picture like this about back to school, you think about uh, the fall. A lot of times our kids think about the idea of being, um, you know, away for the summer and coming back and beginning the school again as the fall starts. At the same time, though, as many of our kids know and you parents, uh, they've just gone back to school. Several have over the last few days. We've got college students that I think that will be, begin again here soon this week. Some will be traveling, but we'll start back with school time. And so it's back to school again. I want to ask you a question this morning as we begin. If you've ever found yourself in a situation before where you were sitting in class and maybe it was a new class, this may be more of a college thing sometimes, but I think it can happen in any kind of class, but you showed up in class and you sit down and the teacher says something that you have no idea what they're talking about. But you look around and everyone else seems to know exactly what they're saying, right? Whether it's a science class or something or math class of some, some sort, and you sit down and the teacher says, well, for the first day, since we all understand quantum physics, we're just going to kind of skip that part. And you look to your right and somebody's sitting there and they're nodding their head and you look to your left and somebody's going, yes, absolutely. And you're sitting there going, I have no idea what's coming next. I don't know if that's a real anxiety or fear of mine. I think I've been there a time or two before where, yes, you feel like you don't want to raise your hand, right, because everybody's going to think, well, why doesn't he know what's going on here? You know, we all understand whatever it is. Why is it that this person is so far behind? Let me ask you this morning as we begin the Bible lesson this morning, have you ever been in a Bible class and had that feeling before? Maybe the preacher says something or the teacher says something and you look around and everyone else is nodding or they mention the name of Abraham and everyone is turning to some place in their Bible and you don't have any idea where they're going. And you're not going to raise your hand and say, excuse me, preacher, who is that? Or what is it that you're talking about? Because I don't know. Because it's a little embarrassing sometimes to maybe think that we don't know something or that we're a little behind, further behind than everyone else. It certainly happens sometimes in school, a school setting like that, a training kind of setting, 
But I, I think it can happen sometimes even in Bible class. So we're going to start this morning with your favorite thing ever, and that is a pop quiz, right? I got a pop quiz for you. There's only five questions, and I don't think as you look at the first question that I'm going to throw you off that bad, all right? And nobody has to answer out loud, uh, but you can kind of think to your head. And again, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, as that kind of is what we're talking about. But what is the first book of the Bible? Is it Ephesians, Genesis, Ruth, or Revelation? Well, most people know, even if they don't attend services every day or didn't grow up going to Bible class, that Genesis is certainly the first book of the Bible. Number two. What animal tempted Eve in the garden? Was it an ox, a cow, a serpent, or a dove? I told you it wasn't going to be too hard. We're not, we're not trying to, to embarrass or hurt anyone this morning. It wasn't going to be too difficult. But if you've ever heard that story, and once again, you don't have to have been going to Bible class from the time that you could walk to know that the story involves a serpent, right? In Exodus, to whom did God reveal the commandments, or as we usually call them, the Ten Commandments. Was it Isaiah? Was it Moses? Was it Jeremiah? Or was it Daniel? Somebody might say, well, I've heard all those names before, but maybe I'm not sure. Or some people will say, well, you know, I've seen the movie, right? And so I know exactly what's going on here. But we know that Moses is the one who received those commandments from God. What was, or is, however you want to phrase it, the name of Abraham's wife? Is it Sarah? Was it Rahab? Was it Hagar? Or was it Mary? Again, just a few moments ago in our young adult college class, we studied James. In James chapter 2, as James is talking about faith, he mentions Rahab. Rahab's mentioned in the New Testament. Of course, a lot of folks know and understand Mary, but Abraham's wife was Sarah. And if you are looking at this and you maybe have studied this recently, you know that sometimes you'll find an I in your Bible, right? It's kind of the idea of Sarai, S-A-R-A-I, so it may look a little different. But of course, Sarah was Abraham's wife. Now, I couldn't let you off too easy. We're going to find one that maybe some folks don't know. And again, you don't have to speak out loud one way or the other. But who was the first king of Israel? Was it David? Was it Solomon? Was it Samuel? Or was it Saul? Who was the first king of Israel as we look back at Old Testament history? Well, you again know those names. There's some kings on there. But it was Saul that's mentioned as the first king of Israel. What we're doing this morning is beginning a series that really came from a Facebook post. And I know most of you won't be able to make that out, but our, some of you know our brother Jack Wilkie. We studied his book, Church Reset, not too long ago here in the auditorium. But he posted something the 1st of December that said he got an email this week that was a great idea for a book. So really what I'm just trying to do is beat him to the punch and have this sermon series before his book comes out. But he says, if you're a Christian now, but did not grow up around the Bible and didn't get a Sunday school education or things like that, and would be willing to help us out by answering a few questions, please comment below or message me. And this is still up, and of course it deals with his work at Focus Press. But there were about 30 comments as of a few days ago, and they looked something like this. One person commented and said, I would love to help out. I became a Christian and was introduced to the Bible for the first time at 19 years old. Someone else said, I didn't grow up in the church, but have been a Christian for 12 years now, and I think that that would help people like me immensely. And then the one that kind of stuck out, stuck out, someone said, my husband used to joke that when he became a Christian at 33, he needed to go to the junior high class because people kept talking about David 
Daniel, Moses, and Abraham, and he only had a vague sense of who they were. Now, if we heard someone say that, or again, go back to the class setting, and someone raises their hand and says, who, who is Moses? Most of us would gasp, right, and say, who is this person that doesn't understand who Moses is? But that's exactly the way that this man felt, and I'm going to not ask you to raise your hand, but to think for a minute, there's a good chance that maybe you have felt this way before. You say, well, I know who David is. That's not a question in my mind, but maybe there was someone else or some other situation that you were unsure about. I don't know if I've said it publicly before from the pulpit or teaching, but I know I've said it to some of you privately. But I, I'll always remember that growing up, I'm aware of the Old Testament. I, I was aware, and I was what we would call raised in the church, going to Bible study all my life. And I'm aware that there were kings. I know who David is. But you, if you had asked me to sketch out Old Testament history, even getting to Freed Hardeman in some of the classes I took there, until I sat down and studied more diligently and really worked to commit that to my memory, I, I couldn't have done it either. Because yes, I know King Saul and I know David and I've heard about Abraham and I know Abraham's in Genesis, but I really don't know much outside of that when it comes to the history of the children of Israel. So we're, we probably all felt like this in some way. So what we're going to do is begin a series that I've entitled Sunday School Catch-Up. And it's not meant to embarrass anybody. And as we said, we're not going to ask you to raise your hand or, or take a poll and remember which stories you've missed or don't know anything about. What my plans are, and I've kind of gone back and forth about it, but I think what my plans are is that we'll begin today, but we'll probably take one a month or something like that. I've got a few other series I'd like for us to talk about in the near future and things like that, but I've got some friends that sometimes they'll pick a theme or a series and they'll just do 12. They'll do one every month. And we may scrunch them a little close together, we'll see. But I've not even identified every single story, I think, or, or person I'd like for us to consider. But I hope that it would be encouraging to you to think about this idea uh, of catching up on some things that maybe you've not thought about in a long time or you're unsure about. And, and also, the whole point is to understand that we don't have to be embarrassed about it because all we've really got to do is, is dig in a little bit more. The question then comes up, of course, though, is, is why? Why would we spend time talking about this? Why would we, we spend the Sunday morning sermon focusing on some of these things? But I think it's true that it's very easy sometimes. And most of you know, I love to preach the Old Testament. If I ask Hannah sometimes and say, well, what do you think I should preach, you know, coming up? Or you got anything you think I should talk about? She'll say, I love when you talk about the Old Testament, whatever it might be. And so there's some encouraging things there for us. But as we move into the rest of this lesson this morning, we're not going to talk about one thing in particular. I'd considered go ahead and going through the days of creation. How many of us could name and talk about what happens on each day of creation? I have a feeling these kids may be able to. I have a feeling you ladies that have taught that maybe recently and taught some of our kids could. I know that I could if I could think of the song only fast enough in my head. But we may save that for a future time. But why is it? Why is it that we should worry about these things or consider them? A few passages for you to think about. Well, we'll get to a few passages this morning. But I wanted to, to say it this way. When we think about the things that we should know about the Bible or the things that we study, you could say that you don't have to pass a quiz to get to heaven, right? To be with God for all eternity. Now, we might could quibble about the way that's worded and somebody might say, well, in a sense you do, right? We do have to give an account for everything that we do here in this life. And that's true. We do have to, to answer for our actions. And so a sense, in a sense, every time that we come up to a decision, it's kind of like a quiz. 
Again, this morning in our class, we've been talking about James. We talked about James 3 in the tongue. So we were talking about various situations, whether it's lying or gossip or slander or foul language and, and cuss words, we might say. But every time you come up to a moment with how you use your tongue or your words, it's almost like a, a quiz. But at the same time, you don't stand before God and God's not going to say, well, here's the 100 question quiz and you've got to get 85% right in order to get to heaven, right? That's not how it works. You don't have to pass a quiz, but you do have to know his will. And even as I finished this PowerPoint and I was kind of thinking, I do want you to add in if you're making notes, you do also have to obey his will. I don't want to leave that hanging and maybe un un misunderstood by someone. You don't have to pass a quiz, but you do have to know his will. We don't just stumble through this life and wake up one morning or, or pass away or the Lord returns and it's like, well, I've just kind of stumbled into heaven. You know, it's just kind of happened by accident. Again, you don't have to have facts memorized. And, and as I think about that, I think about the Bible Bowl with our kids, right? We've, been, we've started studying Bible Bowl again, those books, in particular Ezra and Nehemiah right now. But so we're challenging them to memorize some things. We're challenging them to focus in on some facts. And it's not like that. But you do have to know His will. You can't worship something else or someone else or be like the demons and the devil who believe and that be it. You've got to know his will, and you've got to obey his will. And can I suggest for you this morning that if you want to know his will, then you also have to know his word. Why is it worth our time and our thoughts to consider these things, especially these Old Testament things? Because if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be found faithful, you have to know his will, and in order to know his will, you have to know his word. We live in the Christian dispensation. We live in the Christian age. We do not have to offer sacrifices. We do not have to keep the law, and we are thankful for that. At the same time, though, those things are a benefit to us, and it helps us to know and to understand them. So again, as I said a moment ago, a few passages for you to consider this morning. First of all, in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4. You know, it's interesting that Paul is one who certainly emphasizes this. Some of the passages we're going to mention, or two of the ones in particular, come from Paul. And Paul is writing to Christians. In particular, he's writing to Christians here at Rome. And he says, For whatever things were written before, before this moment in time, as he's write, writing right now, and maybe even certainly in a larger sense, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. These things that were written of old, I don't know what version you have in front of you, but it may look different or read different, but those things that were before were written for our learning that we might have hope. I think I have said it, shared with you before that Hannah's grandmother on her mom's side, Wanda Hennessy, many of you know Miss Wanda, but she has always done a great job of writing down historical facts about the family. She's got a lot of them written down. They've made copies for us before, for the grandchildren that they could have. And it's wonderful to be able to pass those things on. And some of you may do that, and it's encouraging. Uh, and some of you may not, but you have those good memories. But it's helpful for us to be able to look back and not just misremember things or not just have multiple versions. Have you ever studied criminal justice in the court system and things like that? An eyewitness is great quite often. But also, when you've got five eyewitnesses, you're probably going to get five different accounts. Maybe not that person A shot person B, 
but maybe the clothes they were wearing, how tall they were, how light or dark it was, you get varying accounts. When someone writes down exactly what happened, and as we think about with Scripture, it's written down by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't just say, well, this is what I remember, but these things that were inspired by the Holy Spirit were written for our learning that we might have hope. Have you ever studied Abraham before and gained any hope? Have you ever studied Moses before and gained any hope? David, Daniel, Saul, Solomon, Rahab, Deborah, anybody. Have you ever studied any of these people and found some kind of hope? Do we know that one thing that hasn't changed over the course of time is that human beings are human beings. Human beings mess up. And I'm thankful to look back at someone like David. I had to write an article just the past few weeks for the truth publication that we put out sometimes and it was on lessons from the life of King David and it really struck me trying to trying to bring down to one sheet of paper the lessons from the life of David do you know or remember that there's a lot of encouraging lessons from David there really are about fighting Goliath about doing things for God about being humble but there's also right there in the middle that awful awful story about how far sin will take you when does he not only commit adultery with Bathsheba but then also has her husband killed, and so on and so forth. Because sin never gives what it promises. I'm thankful that David went through that so that I can learn from that. Unfortunately, I also have to go through it sometimes, but it does give me hope. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 11. He says, now all these things, and if you have your Bible, maybe turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, I ask you to turn there because I constantly preach context, 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 right? We're always talking about that. So when you read this particular verse, you've got to understand what he means by all these examples. Well, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the, the title in my Bible says Old Testament examples. But if you've started turning there and looking down through there, here's the thing. These are not good ones. These are not encouraging. In fact, right before verse 11, what Paul is talking about is those who have participated with lust, those who have committed sexual immorality, those who have done all of these awful things, including complaining that's mentioned there. And Paul says all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition. We studied some of Paul's epistles not too long ago in here on Wednesday night and we asked the question, can you imagine if Paul had written about you? You know, there's a couple of times where he calls someone by name and he says, please encourage this person. Please help them to do better. What about the letter to the Corinthians, right? Both epistles to the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. It's, there is said among you that there is a man who has his father's wife. I think everybody might have known who that was. And it's scary for us to think about if Paul could write about you and me today. But when he does write about someone, he reminds us that those things were written for our admonition. It's to help them fix their problems, absolutely, but it's to help us learn and to see. And so as we begin this series and we start thinking about everyone that's gone on before us, as we say, then we can think about some lessons that we can learn. You know, it's very, very sad. I hate when we lose folks here. Even in the last couple of weeks as we lost some of our shut-ins, folks that I hadn't even got to know that well, 
as we had our lesson last Sunday afternoon about the last year, we talked about those who had passed away, great examples of people whom we love dearly. It, it's sad, but it's encouraging. I was thinking as Don was reading off the names this morning, and some of you knew Brother Dan and some of you didn't, but, but even others that we mentioned here, it's completely and totally different when someone is a faithful child of God. It's a hole in our lives that's a void, but we also have great memories of someone who did great things that is written for our admonition. I want to ask you to turn to one more passage, and that's Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're obviously not going to read the whole thing, and I don't have to for many of you because you're familiar with a lot of the things that are there. When Paul writes these things, like these things that were written aforetime are written for our learning. When he writes that they're written for our admonition, we also talked about this on Wednesday night in our auditorium class. We said, as our author of our book, Lance Mosier, mentioned, that many times when we sin, what we're doing is we're saying to God, I've heard your way, but I'm going to try my way. That's what all these people have done. Now, as you look at Hebrews chapter 11, most of them have done good things, right? There's, of course, some, maybe some things mentioned in there that are not the best. But faithful Abraham is mentioned, of course. Faithful Moses is mentioned, of course. But let me remind you to turn and look beginning at verse number 30. Have you ever tried to memorize or talk about those names? In verses 30 through 40, the end of the chapter, there are so many things that are mentioned there that we don't have time to get into. Those things are written for our admonition. Those things are written for our learning that we might have hope. There's some things there that are encouraging, people who did good things. There are some things in verses 30 through 40 that are terrifying, that are scary. People who were sawn in too. We always say that we're thankful for a country where that doesn't happen. We also started saying more that we hope we don't live in a country where that might not be the case soon. And it may never be the case that we go that far, but persecutions may be on the, horizons, on the horizon more than we've ever faced before. But Hebrews chapter 11 is written for our admonition and our encouragement that we can see what folks have done and we can take comfort knowing that we can do the same and receive a reward. But as you've turned there, I want to give you Hebrews chapter 12, right? It's broken up in our Bible by man for verses and for chapters. But in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse number 1, the Hebrew writer says something that's meant to encourage us and continue the thought. Because he says what? Therefore, right? All of these people that we've just mentioned, go back to verse 39 of chapter 11, all these who have obtained a good testimony, they get a passing grade. They've done what they should. They've been faithful both in faith and also in works. But therefore, because of this, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Can I emphasize again for you here on the screen? Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. When I think about this idea of those who have gone on from Saudi, those who have gone on of your family, some of you have family who weren't members here, but you have family who were faithful Christians. And when you think about those even in Hebrews chapter 11, who encourage us by what they did. We don't have time this morning, but I think many people suggest this doesn't necessarily uh, suggest the idea that these folks are watching on us or have any kind of impact on what's happening on earth. But at the same time, we have these witnesses by what we can read about how they acted, how they behaved, and how faithful they were. 
You know, this is one of those verses that gets kind of long, and we, it helps us sometimes when we condense it just a little bit. So I tried here. Therefore, because of the things we just read in chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin, and let us run the race. That's our challenge. Lay aside the weight, lay aside the sin, and run the race. That's the challenge that lies before us. We are starting a new year, and God be willing, we'll be blessed with another year of life here on this earth, and we think about those challenges. But as we even think about the year, we think about our lives. We're not promised tomorrow, but we're thankful for the time that we have. And as we look back, we need to always be encouraged. And I hope that you'll be encouraged through this series and not embarrassed. The goal is not to try to bring up obscure things that you've never heard of. The goal is not to bore you with things some of you already know, but to remind ourselves about some of these great people and exactly what they did and how it benefits us. You've heard lessons like that your whole life, but hopefully you'll be encouraged by this series as well. When you think about some of those things, maybe some of you are in a position where you say, you know, I didn't go from the time that I was knee high, and, and I feel like I've missed out on some of these people. I feel like I've missed out on some of these lessons. And even though I know the name Abraham, I've forgotten exactly what all's included in his story. And we hope to think about some of those things and encourage you with that as we go through this year. If you have any thoughts or ideas or suggestions, that's fine. I, I don't mind to take them. As I said, I've still been kind of trying to map out exactly the best way to work through these things. But it's a catch-up, maybe, for some of us. For others, it's a reminder to think about exactly what happened so that, we cannot so that we don't have to make the same mistakes that they made. That we can be found faithful. It's not through sacrifices like they did, but God said from the very beginning, here's how you need to be obedient. Here's how you can be found faithful. You do what I say. It may have changed over the course of time, but he's always had a will, and we know it by working through his word and studying his word. It's why we've taken a Sunday, each one Sunday a month since I've been here, and tried to work through a book of the month. You know, I was kind of laughing as I was thinking about this afternoon's lesson, we're supposed to cover Habakkuk. I don't think most of you woke up this morning and said, I can't wait to learn about Habakkuk, right? Because that's just not the way we feel about these prophets who are short and small in their length of the book, and we're not sure about them, and it just we usually blow right by it and don't even think about it. But as I was studying Habakkuk, I was reminded about some good stories that are there, even for us as Christians today. So we hope you'll be back with us this afternoon. We hope that you'll be back with us any chance that you have an opportunity with any lesson. But certainly as we think about catching up in the new year. As we conclude this lesson, we extend heaven's invitation. As we said, heaven's invitation is different as we think about the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't have to worry about sacrifices, but we do need to be obedient. God told them to offer sacrifices. He told them how to be acceptable. They were to do it. God has told us in speaking through his son that we need to be obedient through the gospel plan of salvation. If you're here this day and you've never obeyed the plan of salvation, which by the way is beautiful because it shows us how we can participate with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. If you see a slide like this and you're unsure what it says or what it means, ask us a question, please. We'd love to talk with you about it, to study it with you as soon as possible because it is the greatest decision a person can make here on this earth. When we talk about resolutions, we talk about losing weight, about trying to gain knowledge or to save money, all those things are fine. But becoming a Christian is the most important thing a person can do, and we would love to help you with that, being baptized for the remission of your sins so that the Lord can add you to his church. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that, but you've struggled to remain faithful. Guess what? That might be the theme of the Old Testament. Struggling at times to remain faithful. Maybe that's the lesson that we can learn. And what we see is sometimes they came back to God in the way that he told them to in the Old Testament. But we have an opportunity through even the verses that are mentioned on the screen here to walk in the light. We have an opportunity because we're still here right now this morning to confess our sins, to repent and pray. And we hope that if you've struggled to remain faithful or there's sin in your life that you'd like forgiveness of, that you might come forward in a moment during the singing of this song. One of our elders will be here to receive you and pray with you and for you. But we hope that you'd be willing to make a change, either by becoming a Christian or coming back to him as we stand together and as we sing. All right, some of you have already cheated, but now's your time to turn to Habakkuk and not uh, have anybody time you or see how long it takes you to find Habakkuk. So uh, we've joked about this recently with our you know, book of the month studies, but we're towards the end of the Old Testament. Of course, if you open your Bible sort of to the middle and, and start working your way, uh, probably if you open it around to the middle, start working your way towards the back, you'll come across these minor prophets that we've been looking at. While you're turning and finding Habakkuk there, uh, this is everybody's favorite time where the preacher has to make his apologies. Uh, for things. I appreciate all the, the kind words about the lesson this morning. Look forward to that. Uh, that was, I shared Jack Wilkie's Facebook post. Hannah had seen that. She had told me, she said, you ought to, ought to do that. So I appreciate uh, her suggesting that. And, and many of you have said we look forward to, to uh, looking at some of the characters, some of the people, some of the stories from the Old Testament and the encouragement we find uh, from them. Uh, the one thing I really wanted to say was this is kind of the, the smaller crowd with our kids being gone and all, but, but I apologized last week before the lesson started about leaving people out, and of course I left several people out. So last uh, Sunday afternoon was our uh, sort of end of the year, first of the year sermon, um, and I know I'd miss Ricky Ritchie uh, was added as a deacon uh, last year, and then uh, Tennessee, Wilson, and Chase were both baptized last year, and I think they were left off of that list, so uh, I apologize. I usually don't think to keep up with those things during the year, and I go back and look through the bulletins, and if we miss something in the bulletin, then definitely it's kind of lost to history, so I apologize about that, but thankful for all the good things we were able to talk about uh, last week and, and looking forward to the new year. We've been talking now for several months about the minor prophets, of course, emphasizing over and over again that they are short only in length, not in importance. They're interesting, as we're going to talk about today. There are some peculiar things about each one of these books, but uh, really they're called minor simply because of their length. When you come to Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's going to take you longer. They are part of the major prophets. There's more material there, uh, but these are not less important, but just certainly shorter in length. As I said this morning in the lesson, I'd kind of been thinking the last couple of days, even my own studies. I'm sure nobody woke up today or, you know, came back saying, I'm excited to study Habakkuk. Because while it's kind of funny to pronounce, we don't know a whole lot about uh, this book. Usually, typically, most people don't. But I think hopefully we'll find something to encourage ourselves with as we kind of try to break down what the book is saying. Uh, once again, this has been in the bulletin, or been in the notes each week, each month now for several months. Um, but we want to be reminded that the prophets, their emphasis was to point out God's majesty, his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. Most often, or more often than not, we might even say, the prophets were preaching to the people about the great and wonderful God in heaven above and what he wanted them to know, how holy he was, and also how just he was. Can I ask you to pay attention to that word this afternoon, justice? That's really one of the themes of the book of Habakkuk and what we think about when it comes to this book. Habakkuk is often called the questioning prophet. 
the questioning prophet. You're going to see why that is in just a moment as we give a brief outline. But some people call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. And some people call other prophets by other names. And if we were to give one to Habakkuk, it would be that he is the questioning prophet prophet and let's get into exactly why that is if you've opened up there you've noticed that there are three chapters very short three chapters and so our outline is going to consist of three main points here as I turn over to the first slide you'll see the division is not exactly one-to-one chapter one chapter two chapter three there's a little bit of spilling over of, of the verses but we might say that to begin the book the outline is first of all the prophets problems the prophet's problems. Now, one thing that I'll share with you is in my studies, I had, you know, opened my Bible and looked at Habakkuk, but I had been watching some other sermons and reading other books. And when I came, I found something that really explained it. We're going to get to it in a second. I came back and I realized that mine was broken down into that same section. So you may see the prophet's question or the Lord's reply. But that's exactly what this is. Really, chapters 1 and 2 deal with this discussion, if you will, between Habakkuk and God. So the second part then is the Lord's promise. Let's see if I can get to this in just a second here where I'll, I'll give you kind of the discussion back and forth. But the second part then deals with God's promise. It's pretty much uh, the rest of chapter 2. But God is speaking to Habakkuk and letting him know about what his plans are. His promise is the Lord's promise. Chapter 2, verses 4 through chapter, or excuse me, chapter 2, verses 4 through verse 20. All right, so this is what I, I, I put it in the wrong spot here that I thought. It begins, the book begins, there's going to be four sections on the screen here. They're not outlined or, you know, kind of have a highlight around them. But the first is Habakkuk's problem that we said just a moment ago. He is going, what this is, is going to be a back and forth for two times each, with a complaint from Habakkuk and a response from God. So the first part here is Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4, and this is Habakkuk's complaint, his first complaint. His complaint, to be summed up in our terms, is, why won't you listen to God? Judah, not Babylon, not Assyria, not the big cities that we're conquering, but God's people, Judah, is so wicked. They're ignoring the law. They are serving idols. They are, they're violent. They're a part of injustice. They're a part of oppression. Why is Judah, who is being so wicked, not being punished? Have you ever asked that question before? Not about Judah, of course, but about somebody else. Most of you have siblings. That's kind of where it comes in most of the time, right? Or at school. Why is it that they're not getting in trouble when they're doing the wrong thing? I'm trying to do what's right you know, to the teacher or the authority, what's your, what's your problem? This is your fault. You're not punishing them. So the first complaint is from Habakkuk to God. Why won't you listen? The first response from God is chapter one, verses five through 11. And his response is, look, I'm raising up Babylon. I'm raising up Babylon. Now my Bible in the new King James in verse number six of chapter 1 says the Chaldeans, but we're talking about Babylon is what we're talking about here. God said, Habakkuk says, why won't you listen? God's response is, look, I'm raising up Babylon to solve the problem. You're fussing about them not being punished. I am raising up Babylon. Then though, that leads Habakkuk to have a second complaint 
And his second complaint, and I think that's supposed to be uh, verse 12, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. A little bit of a section there. Chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2. And Habakkuk says, what? You're raising up Babylon? I want you to punish them because they're doing wrong, but I asked for you to help. I didn't ask for you to bring these heathens in and let them be the ones to cause the problems here. That's not what I wanted. What do you mean you're raising up Babylon? They're a bunch of heathens. And then the second response from God is chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. I really messed up some of those verses. I apologize there. But chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, where God says, oh, they're going to be punished as well. I will bring them down. God says, oh, Babylon will be judged, but right now they are my instrument. Right now I am using them to punish Judah. So have you ever, let me ask you to go back then. I ask you if you, if you ever had a sibling and you dealt with that kind of problem or the school setting. Have you ever had this whole thing happen, right? Why won't you punish them? Well, I'm going to punish them, but you're not going to like what I'm going to do. Well, why are you doing that then? Why, why did you choose that, that route? Don't, don't drag me in too or don't use these other bad people. That's kind of the situation here with the back and forth. He says, yeah, I'm bringing Babylon in. Habakkuk says, what? Those folks, why would you do that? They're even worse. If Judah is bad, the Babylonians are even worse. And God says, oh, well, I will judge them as well. Don't you worry. And so then the second part, as we said just a moment ago, if we were to break it down into three main parts, is the Lord's promise that Babylon will be punished. And so then the third chapter, to come back kind of to the three main parts, is the prophet's prayer as Habakkuk learns to trust God. He's going to learn to trust in God. So the third chapter is his prayer, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. One of the lessons that I was kind of borrowing from and listening to one of my other good friends that had preached on this, he gave a modern example of what I just laid out for you, that, that kind of four-part chart there. It's not maybe the greatest example, but I think it kind of hits home for us. If we as Christians, as we sometimes are known to do, said, God, why won't you do something about our fellow United States of America, our people here, our fellow countrymen? Why won't you do something about how wicked, about the promotion of homosexuality and sin? Why won't you do something? And if God were still speaking directly to us today the way he would through the prophets, if he were still speaking to us directly today and he said, well, I'm going to use ISIS as my instrument and you're going to be attacked by ISIS, we would say, what? That, that's not what we want. That's not what we meant. They're worse than, they, than we are. They're, they're people who are committing all kinds of acts of violence. That's not right. And he would say, oh, well, I'm raising them up to be my instrument, but they will be defeated as well. That's probably about as close as a modern example as we can get to kind of what's going on right here in this interaction between Habakkuk and God. We'll come back to some of that as we make some lessons, but let's talk a little bit more about Habakkuk. Who is the author? Habakkuk. We usually put sometimes in parentheses or around this that, of course, the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to guide the writing here, inspire these writers, but there's no reason necessarily to, to think that it's someone other than Habakkuk. His name means to embrace, to embrace or the embracer. And this may be of no significance. You know, sometimes the writer's name maybe connects with the story from their, their book or their teachings, but not necessarily here. Nothing 
Nothing of his personal life is recorded except that he was a prophet. We know the name Habakkuk, and he was a prophet from chapter 1 and verse 1, but that's not, not much else we know. Perhaps he was a contemporary of Jeremiah or Zephaniah or Ezekiel. Uh, he's probably only slightly later than Nahum that we talked about last month um, as far as dating things, but we're going to come back to the date again in just a second. It's also possible that Habakkuk, as the author, was a temple musician. If you have your Bible open there, I want to look at chapter 3 and verse 19. You'll notice that chapter 3 and verse 19 ends with the saying to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Now, the prayer here, go back to the beginning of chapter 3. The prayer and some of the words that are used here are the idea of a uh, of a musical term. It's more, we don't read that in our language, but it's the idea of a musical term. It was probably written, chapter 3 was, as a psalm of sorts. And in fact, you may see a word at the end of verse, or in the middle of verse 3, in the middle of verse 9, in several places that you see in the psalms, if you re- have read through the psalms. And it's that Selah, or Selah, S-E-L-A-H, which is, we pronounce it, but it was written more as a rest in music. Like, say, uh, it's not meant to be pronounced. There was, were, there was instrumental music in the temple, and it would be used as a rest. And so it's possible that he was a temple musician by what we read here. Once again, we don't know with 100% surety. But if he were a temple musician, that would also mean he would be a Levite. But again, we're not going to say we absolutely know that, although chapter 3 is kind of interesting the way it's written there. He also wants to know why people suffer, why the righteous suffer. You know anybody else who did that? Didn't Job do that? Why is it that the righteous suffer? Gideon actually kind of had the same question in Judges chapter 6 and verse 13. Gideon kind of said something similar. And even in Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 and 10, the early Christians had the question, why is it that the righteous suffer? And that's kind of a part of the question here from Habakkuk. All right, the date. As I usually emphasize, some of you this brings some interest to, and most people say I could care less. 612 to 605 B.C. means nothing to me. But can I suggest to you the reason why we say this is kind of interesting. Uh, Nineveh fell in 612, and there is no mention of Nineveh or Assyria. Do you remember when we talked about Nahum last month, if you were with us? But the Nineveh was a part of that. There's no mention of Nineveh in Habakkuk. And so Nineveh fell in 612. And Jerusalem fell in 606. And so uh, that's sometimes the range that we look at there. Uh, In chapter 3 and verse 16, there's kind of this mention of invading. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. And so maybe that helps us talk about the fall of Jerusalem and gives us a pretty close date when we talk about the book. Again, overall, it may not mean much, but, but it does help us as we think about our historical facts. All right. The message, if we could try to say one message from the book, we're going to have some lessons, and that kind of goes along with this, but we might say Habakkuk 2.20. Habakkuk 2.20. You know it, don't you? We sing it sometimes. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What is God saying here? What's the message? The message is trust in God. The message is he knows what he is doing. He is and always will be on his throne. You know, a lot of times we, especially today, as 21st century Americans and 21st century people, will say, where was God when blank? 
atheists, agnostics, some people will really say 9-11, right? Where was God on 9-11? Where was God when my spouse died? Where was God when so-and-so, when whatever might happen, might have happened in your life? And the reason this is probably a good message for Habakkuk is because the answer every single time, where was God when this happened? He was on his throne. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He is sovereign. He is not on our timetable. The righteous suffer. Bad things happen. But every single time something bad happens and every single time something good happens, God is on his throne and he is reigning. We get caught up in the moment. But some people say it this way, as, as we say sometimes, God has this. God has got it. Whatever it is. Because if you didn't notice, a lot of people take offense or problems to lots of different things. There have been lots of presidents in the past. People will say, well, where was God? Why do they allow this person to be president? And I mean, we say it some still today. Where is God when all this stuff is happening? Where is God? Where is God? He's on his throne. He always has. He always will be. He has this. It's on his timetable. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You know, as we've even been thinking, the world, we talked a little bit about it, but the world has been thinking about the birth of Jesus around the holiday season, and people are talking about it a lot. You remember what Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says? It's a pretty good parallel to this. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Do you think if we were living in that time, we would have been saying, where's God? right? We're being persecuted at times. Where's God? <clears throat> I think I asked this question. I think it may have been last year, the year before last now, I guess, uh, maybe the winter of 21 that we talked about um, this idea around some things. And I said, you know, when would Jesus have been brought into the world if it had been up to us or me? I don't mean to, you know, be irreverent anyway or put myself in God's place, but when would it have happened if I had made the decision? Well, probably at the wrong time is the answer, right? Because Paul reminds us when the fullness of time had come, when God knew what was best, when God planned for it to happen, that's when he sent forth his son, born of a woman. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Sometimes we would be wise, to, as the kids say there, zip it up and just stop questioning God because he knows and he is in charge and he is not on our timetable. Some people will say uh, that chapter 2 and verse 4 is the message. If you're open there, you know that. I asked Brian to lead Living by Faith uh, because we, uh, we, we didn't sing it this morning. We sang another one about faith. But he's, he asked me about this afternoon. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, the just shall live by faith. That's a pretty good one. But I like chapter 2 and verse 20 as well. All right, some peculiarities here about the book. I've actually got three. This is the first one that's struck through on purpose. But one of the things about Habakkuk that's different is that most prophets, the book is about God speaking to the people, right? It's about God saying, this is my message. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jonah, whoever it is, go give my message to the people. But Habakkuk is different because he is taking the, he is uh, is the taking of the people's complaint to God. He's speaking to God and complaining as opposed to the other way around. So it's a little different than most of the other minor prophets because if it's, not, it's not God to the people, but it's the people, and in particular Habakkuk, back to God. 
what's going on, why are things like they are. Number two, Habakkuk doesn't name any kings. Now, unlike many of the other prophets, Habakkuk doesn't name any kings, and that doesn't help us when it comes to the dating of the book, right? When somebody says, well, King Cyrus or King Hezekiah or someone else, well, we go, oh, well, we know when they reign, and so we can kind of date the book. Now, the events help us date the book about Nineveh or Babylon or the fall of Jerusalem, but unlike many of the prophets, Habakkuk doesn't name any kings. So just kind of a peculiar thing that comes about as you read it. And then number three, chapter three is an acrostic poem or a song. Now, certainly for the sake of time, I wasn't going to get into this, but if you were interested in kind of looking it up, you could do some research on your own. But when you go back to the original language, it forms an acrostic, all right? And again, we wouldn't have time to get through all of it there. Um, but as you think about it potentially being a psalm or a song, the words there for rest, instrument being, instruments being used, uh, chapter 3 is written in this form, which is different for us because we don't read that way. In our English, though, we are used to it with poetry, right, or, or music, songs rhyming or kind of forming a certain form. Uh, that's true. But uh, chapter 3 is interesting and kind of peculiar because of that. Uh, a couple of key thoughts uh, real quick. One is uh, a key thought from the book is, is why do the wicked prosper? Again, is that not what Job said? Why am I as righteous suffering? Habakkuk said, why are we suffering? Why is it that the wicked sometimes prosper? Do we not look around our country and see that sometimes? Whether it be inflation or rising cost or whatever it might be, it's real easy for us. And by the way, myself included, I mean, no, no disrespect or saying you're wrong necessarily, but it's real easy for us to look around and say, we're trying to do what's right. We're trying to follow God, and there are people who are making millions and billions of dollars doing all kinds of vile and th sinful things. It's true. The wicked sometimes pro prosper. The righteous sometimes suffer. And we question God about that, and that's kind of um, a thought here. Uh, the book opens with gloom, with Habakkuk asking the question. He's asking the question, why? Why, God, are you allowing this suffering? Why are you allowing this evil? The book opens with gloom, but it closes with glory. It closes with glory. The prophet's prayer, recognizing that he needs to trust in God. Chapter 3 and verse 19, again, we emphasize the last part. The first part, the Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. Opens with gloom and closes with glory. And, of course, you know, again, the question is, how could God see all the evil in Judah and not do something? And that, of course, is an ongoing question with us sometimes. Why doesn't God discipline everyone when they're wrong and when they mess up? And, of course, probably the answer usually is, is well, if he did that, we would deserve that as well because we are not perfect. God said he would act, and Habakkuk was not expecting his answer that it was going to be Babylon, but also that Babylon would also be judged. God doesn't say, I'm going to raise up these evil people and they're going to destroy Judah and then they're just going to continue to have glory and honor and riches. No, they'll pay. They're my instrument right now. All right, very quickly, I've got uh, three or four lessons here, maybe five total, but we'll work through them pretty quickly. We've already talked about a lot of it. But number one, God's children sometimes have questions about his actions that they don't understand. Or his lack of action, right? God, why won't you do something? And this is what we think. Where is God? Why isn't he acting? 
Why are these evil things happening? And here's the thing. Can I suggest to you this afternoon that having a question is not a bad thing sometimes? But we can become prideful in our questioning that we know better than God. And that's where Job, boy, Job gets right up to the close of that, doesn't he? He gets right up to that line with his prideful way of asking God, who are you? What are you doing? I'm the one that knows what should be happening. Job gets right there. And maybe Habakkuk doesn't come as close, but you kind of see this phrase, this idea, why do the wicked seem to have the upper hand? Why is it that they seem to have good things? And once again, it's that way in our country, is it not? Very often, why is it that so many vile people are the ones that make all the money, that get all the attention, that are always uh, the ones on TV and in the news and this kind of thing? But can we real quick here under this point, as we think about God and his actions or what we perceive to be a lack of action, can we remember a couple of things? Number one, there's no unrighteousness in God, right? We're trying to attach to him that he's doing wrong, but there is no unrighteousness in God. What he does is right. What I, you know, here, the elders may make a decision and we may say, well, is that the right decision? Our president makes a decision. We say, well, is that, that the right decision? We're sometimes not sure. And it's possible that a human being makes a poor decision. But it's not that way with God. There is no unrighteousness in God. Sometimes we attribute things to him that are not him, right? We sometimes might say, well, that tornado or that hurricane or something was God. Isn't it funny sometimes? I think the insurance, I don't know if they still do, but insurance, you know, used to have that phrase, an act of God. This is an act of God. We're not going to cover that because, you know, whatever. As if he's throwing tornadoes around at people. You know, I mean, that's kind of the idea there. That's what God is doing. That's not the same way. He doesn't work the way we work. A, a second thing under that point is kind of the idea that all his words are done in truth. There's no unrighteousness in God and all his words are done in truth. And even number three, he doesn't need our counsel. Right? That, that's what we want to say sometimes. He... He is all wise. The question is, has God ever called on you and said, hey, whoever, you know, hey, hey, Brian, hey, you know, Charles, whoever. Do you have a second? Has God ever called on you and said, can, can I ask you a question? I need your help with something. God doesn't do that. Again, I don't mean to be irreverent in that way, but, but God doesn't do that with us. He doesn't call us and ask us for our advice. He does not need our counsel. It's not that he doesn't care, but it's that he is all wise. We sometimes have questions, and we see that here in Habakkuk. All right, number two, God sometimes uses wicked people or nations to punish his children. Now, back to the modern example of ISIS. I'm not suggesting that anything that God has done or any or time that ISIS has attacked America or anything like that, that's God saying he's punishing us. We are not God's people as a nation the same way that Israel was. But it is also true as we go back and examine the Old Testament as we discussed this morning, that God sometimes used wicked people and wicked nations to punish his children. But what does he say every time? Do you remember in Jeremiah, at least two places in Jeremiah, God says, he calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Nebuchadnezzar, that, that brought in the children of Israel as slaves, that tried to put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, God said, he's my servant. Also, I think it's Isaiah. I didn't get the reference in my notes, but I think in Isaiah, Cyrus is called his shepherd. He, he's called God's shepherd. What, what do you mean? You mean that, that God used Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus for his purposes? He did. 
Now back to the point, the Babylonians would be judged. They would be responsible for their own character, and they would be judged. But at the same time, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, Cyrus, they were used. Not because they faithfully served God, but because they were the instrument through which God punished Judah. So that is true. Number three, we've already said it, but the just shall live by faith. By the way, this passage is quoted three times in the New Testament. Both in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, it's quoted three times. The just shall live by faith. May we always put our trust in God and live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Number four, make it plain. Do you know in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse number 2, as God is going to begin this answer to Habakkuk, he tells him, write the vision and make it plain on, on tablets. Um, I don't know how much you browse around on YouTube and some of the, uh, the YouTube pages that we give you, but the, the Gospel Broadcasting Network has a new program that's been out for a little while now. Um, Eric Garner that preaches at Udawa is one of those that's on there, him and a couple of, of other preachers. But the name of that newer program is called Make It Plain. I think you might have to search like GBN, a Gospel Broadcasting Network, and Make It Plain. But they've covered a lot of different things. I noticed um, that they actually had a short program on premillennialism not long after we'd had our class on that. So I was interested to kind of watch that and see what they had to say and how they presented it. But it's called Make It Plain. May we accept that challenge of Make It Plain. There is a need for simplicity. So plain, by the way, did you open Habakkuk 2, 2 there? Did you see what it says? Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. I think the idea is that a person who is moving, running, can even read it. That's how plain it needs to be. We get tickled sometimes in Dunlap. Uh, one of the eye doctors or the eye doctor in Dunlap that's on the main strip there has a sign that usually has jokes on it to try to get your attention. But, of course, the problem is there's the question on one side and the answer on the other, right? So you're kind of always in danger of trying to rubberneck and turn around and see what the answer to the joke is. Uh, and it's kind of, kind of funny. But, but, you know, so fast that somebody who's going by, or so plain, excuse me, so plain that somebody that's running by can understand what it says. And that's kind of the idea here. In our world where there's so much noise, so much social media, so many opinions, so many people yelling about all kinds of things, we would do well to remember the words here of God. Make it plain. Make it plain for people. And then fifth and finally this afternoon, the answer for troubled times and troubled people is Jesus. You know, as we think about the new year, it's not uh, new fitness gadgets or electronic gadgets that help us with things. It's not resolutions. Even as the Bible says, it's not in military strength. We pray for our military. We pray for the decisions that are made. We pray for our police, police force and things like that. But it's not in military strength. It's not in money, in our country's strength. It's not in politics. It's not in political issues. The answer for troubled times is simply found in Jesus now and forever. Certainly he was not alive then at that time, but the prophets are pointing towards God's justice and again, his timetable. And Habakkuk is a great book for that. As we conclude this lesson this afternoon, we extend heaven's invitation. We hope that the book of Habakkuk might have stirred something within you to, to think about your life or to think about the way that God works. 
Uh, we will sing this song of encouragement that through its words we might encourage you if you want to become a Christian. If you're here this afternoon and not a Christian, we would uh, help you with that or study with you as soon as possible. If you are, but maybe you've wandered away, you've realized like Habakkuk, like the scriptures say about the evil in the world, and maybe even unfortunately you've been a part of it some, a sinful way in your life that you'd like to be free from, you'd like forgiveness for, we're thankful for the opportunity this afternoon to sing this song of encouragement, even now as we stand together and as we sing. <laughs> 